Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. I am your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you for joining me on this sports podcast as we keep moving along in the sports season. Got my buddy Kent Brown on the show today to discuss a triple threat of topics, and it's fitting because one of them being WrestleMania and that triple threat main event. We break down the entire card of WrestleMania 37. We also discuss the Masters, Hideki Matsuyama's first title, what it means for him, what it means for Japan, the other contenders and pretenders that day, Zalatoris making a move in his first Masters. We break all the golf action down from Augusta, and then we talk NHL trades as well. Jeff Carter going to the Penguins, the Bruins getting Taylor Hall, all the contenders loading up, the Leafs, the Lightning, you name it. Everyone's going for a chance to raid Lord Stanley's Cup. There's some sellers as well. So we break down all the action. It's Kent Brown on the Money Mitch Effect, and it starts right now. All right, we're back on the Money Mitch Effect with a friend of the show, somewhat friend of the show. I use that term a little loosely, I think. But Kent Brown is here to talk uh, golf, WrestleMania, and uh, uh, some NHL trades and notes as well. Kent Brown, thanks for joining the show. And uh, good morning, good afternoon. I don't know what your body clock's like, but uh, thanks for joining. Yeah, it's all good for sure. We definitely need to catch up on. It's very rare that the Masters and WrestleMania are the same week. And now WrestleMania has become like a full week with two NXT pay-per-views, two WrestleManias. It's a long, long, a lot of WWE watching for sure. The Masters, of course, we'll get to. And then, as you said, a little bit of puck as well. Some NHL trade deadline and the Penguins trying to make some moves here. So it's been an exciting week for sure. It is. It's been one of the best, if not the best, to get us going into the, that spring season of sports. And let's start with the golf, Kent, because I know you've been locked into this from the beginning. But the Masters had its share of drama, maybe not the Sunday uh, excitement down the stretch that we kind of fiend for. But what it did have was the birth of a new star. And uh, start with the winner. All credit due to Deki Matsuyama for winning his first major and Japan's first one as well. Getting that Masters title. Kent, uh, a little shaky at times, but did what he had to do to just ride that big lead he built on Saturday into the clubhouse to win his green jacket. I guess we can start there with him winning. I know you're a guy that also follows this in the betting markets and and the movements. Him climbing the mountain at Augusta, should that come as a shock to uh, fans of the golf sport? I would say slightly just because he's never been known as a great putter. He's really good tee to green. He's one of those players that a couple years ago – one in your neck of the woods over there at what now is the defunct Bridgestone Invitational yeah. that used to be Firestone. a Firestone yeah. in Akron. And that day I was actually in Vegas with my brother and I bet on him the night before as it went into the fourth round and said, I like his chances to close this. And he moved up to number two in the world. The following week was the PGA championship. He was right in the hunt there. Had he won that, he would have been the number one player in the world. But since then he had not had a win and Hideki Matsuyama was a guy that kind of fell out of the top 20, worked his way back up recently into like the top 30, but his weakness is putting, and you saw it on the back nine. He missed a couple easy putts, but he was so good tee to green, and he built a large enough lead that it never really felt like it was his tournament to lose unless he just completely fell apart. And so I would say overall it's a surprise in that the Masters is a tournament that you have to putt well. If you're not good around the greens and you're not good on the greens, there is a disadvantage. But if you look at the one day that Hideki Matsuyama really stepped up and separated himself, 
it was Saturday after the rain delay where the greens were softer. Mm-hmm. His approach shots stuck on the greens, and he had manageable putts on slower greens. And I think that really helped him. If you watch that back nine or I believe those last seven or eight holes, that was about as good a stretch as you could ever play at Augusta <laughs> yeah. National on a Saturday. And I think without that, he's not the winner. But because of that, it allowed him to build enough, build up a large enough lead. And it wasn't until hole 15 to 18 that there was really any real pressure on him. He took advantage of that opportunity as well. Rose started, Justin Rose started so strong on Thursday and Friday. He kind of fell back to earth a little bit. You had Zalatoris, you had Spieth, Xander Shafley, all these names around the lead, but it was after that rain in the back nine, essentially on Saturday, that won Matsuyama, the Masters. He definitely had the pressure on him on Sunday, you could see, but that's the the uh, gift of having built up such a lead. He was able to kind of work through it. Ken, I'm just wondering, have you had, could you, have you ever related more to a golfer than Matsuyama's first tee shot on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon? <laughs> yeah, it's one of those that you, you hope that you can just find the short grass on your first shot. And it's one, also one of those deals where I've never had any type of pressure generally. It's more so just hopefully I can swing well on this. But you see that a lot with players, especially he's a young player. You know, ultimately, he's still 29 years old. He's not a veteran. Like, Justin Rose, his detriment was he's old enough now that you're going to get worse on Saturday and Sunday, most likely. And to do it for four days is tough. For Matsuyama, it was really about just playing his game. But you're right, off the tee on one, that's a scary endeavor. And Augusta National, there's not a lot of rough. So you can afford to miss fairways, but you don't want to be hitting it into trees or into the pine straw or into where the crowds are. And uh, he recovered. He did just fine. But it was definitely one of those that you can tell the nerves were there on that first shot. And I think that the ultimate example of that is Rory McIlroy two years ago at the British Open. It was in his hometown, a course that he set the course record back in Northern Ireland as like a 13 or 14-year-old. And he hit his first tee shot so far out of bounds that I believe he finished with a 9 or 10 on the hole and never recovered, and that's just all nerves. So overall, no matter what stage of golf you are, whether you're a scratch golfer who just plays a couple times a week, whether you're a hacker who can't break 100, or whether you're a guy about to win the Masters, you stand on that first tee. It's never, generally speaking, never the easiest shot. No, it's not. When you mentioned Rory, I thought you were going to go with hitting his old man with a golf ball at this Masters, but I see what you're saying. How great was sure. that? It was, it was really good. It would have been better if he just yelled out, you're grounded or something like that. Uh, but, you know, it, was, uh, it wasn't Rory's day. It wasn't a lot of players' days. Uh, Matsuyama, you mentioned, still pretty young. He's still in his 20s, 29 years old. And, you know, winning the Masters is going to be a life-changing moment. There's going to be opportunities to win more, but he wins that first one. He gets you know, the, the, everything that comes with it. And, of course, being a Japanese golfer, he's probably going to have a lot of opportunities to earn some well-deserved money as a result. And this was a, a big seismic event. You, you saw it in the reaction with some of the players, even Tiger Woods saying, you know, congrats and, and knowing what that meant for uh, Matsuyama to win. So this is a, a life-changing moment for him, for sure. It is, because when you look at Japanese golfers, there's been good golfers throughout time there's been guys that at times have competed and finished top three top five in majors but he was a guy that was looked at a few years ago as i said potential number one in the world and then fell off 
So there haven't been many guys on that regard. Now, Jason Day is from Australia. So when it comes to like the golf world, he kind of gets thrown in Australia and Asia gets put together. But realistically, that's a different continent. We've seen Adam Scott from Australia, Jason Day, a lot of guys like that win. But when it comes to China, Japan, Korea, there are some really good golfers in that region. And for him to be the first one, especially in Japan, to step up and win a major is a huge accomplishment. And obviously in the women's game, that becomes a commonplace thing now where you're seeing, you know, Asians win big. But when it comes to the PGA Tour, it's still generally America and Europe that for the most part Mm -hmm. dominate the biggest events. And Hideki Matsuyama has now worked himself into the top 15 in the world rankings. And if he continues to play well, he's going to keep ascending. And I do think it's good for the game. It's becoming a way more global game. The World Golf Championship now is a major thing across Mm -hmm. the world, not just in this country. And you look at whether it's the Ryder Cup, the President's Cup, those, those guys that compete against Americans are not far off the United States top golfers anymore. Well, certainly exciting for Matsuyama as far as the rest of the field, Kent. Um, some of the stories good, some of them not good. Everybody wanted to win, and unfortunately there could be one winner. But Zalatoris was you know, the topic of discussion, his first Masters, and he almost became, other than Fuzzy Zeller, the second in recent memory to win it in his first attempt, finishing one shot bat. back. Kent, what can you tell me about this kid and uh, if this, in your opinion, was flash in the pan or if he's going to be here to stay? Yeah, just on a selfish note, all year I've been riding him in my fantasy league. We have 38 of us, and it's based on tier systems. So you can pick, multiple people can pick the same guy. But Zalatoris has been in that 41-plus range, and he's been outstanding all season. Top 20s, top 15s, but hasn't competed. He's not been a guy that's been in the final in the final group on a Saturday or Sunday, but he finishes top 20 and it's been good value. I was a bit hesitant to ride him this week, knowing the fact that this was his first master. So I avoided him. Had I had him in my fantasy lineup, I would have won my league this week. Instead, I finished third. I went with Zach Johnson, who generally speaking is a veteran who does well Mm -hmm. at Augusta and he missed the cut. So I didn't think Zalatoris would be nearly as good as he was. It doesn't surprise me that he played well. I figured he'd make the cut. He'd probably be top 40, top 30, whatever. But for him to come out and play as well as he did, and not only not look afraid, but he also looked like if there were two more holes left, if this could have been a playoff, or if this could have maybe he could have just gotten one more hole down one, I think I would have liked his chances to find a way to win or force a 20th hole. And instead, he fell just short. But it's an accomplishment. He's a guy that's been very good all year. And if you follow golf closely, you're not surprised his name is somewhat up in the first two pages of a leaderboard. But it still was surprising that he ended up really in, in contention. And again, when you looked at this field and all the big names, I think that's another thing that helped Matsuyama a lot was that you didn't have Jordan Spieth on Sunday rise up and shoot a 67. Right. Or even though John Rahm shot a 66, he was too far back, yeah. back at the beginning mm-hmm. of the day. DJ missed the cut. Justin Thomas fell off. Uh, Rory McIlroy and Patrick Cantley missed the cut. So I think for Matsuyama and even Zalatoris, the fact that the biggest names weren't necessarily rising on Saturday and Sunday as much helped those two a lot. But yeah, he's a good golfer. And I think he's a guy that in the next 
12 majors. I would expect Zalatoris to compete in at least one or two more. But I was a little bit surprised just how well he performed at his first time at Augusta. And Nick Faldo said something funny on Sunday's broadcast. He had a tough chip. And Faldo said, well, if you watch this tournament or you play this event enough, you know that this is a tricky chip because you're not sure where the ball will go if you land it at your spot. And then Zalatoris just went up hit a perfect shot, had a tap-in for par, and Faldo said, well, on the other hand, I guess if you've never played here and you're a rookie, maybe you just don't know all the stuff and nothing's in your head, so you can just go up there with fresh (laughs) ideas and play the shot the way you want. And I do think there was a lot of that. I think for the most part, Zalatoris wasn't worried about what he's done in the past as much as, okay, here's my number, here's my game, let's see if I can pull this off and take advantage of what I believe I can do. Yeah, what a what a run from him. I mean, to from I mean, you know this, Kent, from caddying at the Waterbury Open to now being in the, <laughs> in the, for the final two of a major. It's just great. No, I I was happy for him. Uh, I thought it was a good run. We like to see. You never know, you know, because obviously no success is guaranteed going forward. But it was nice to see a new fresh face and someone come uh, up and almost win this thing. The guy that I was, uh, you know, looking forward and and. Is he going to make the next step just to put a bow on this? Kent is Xander Shafley. I mean, he's been top five, you know, top three, top three or four a couple times now at the Masters. Had a chance. You know, the door was slightly open until he put that ball in the water, I would say. So uh, I just wonder if he's going to break through because he's turned himself into one of the most consistent golfers on tour, but just can't unlock that final door. Yeah, I would be shocked if uh, Shafley or Rom, for that matter, two guys that finished in the top five don't win a major within the next couple years. When you look at Shoffley, his entire game fits big events. He's very good in those fields that are smaller. He does really well in like the tour championship. He does well when it comes to like the WGC events and in majors, he's always kind of hovering around that top five to top 10. 16 was a disaster. I don't quite know what he was doing there. I guess if you hit it perfectly on the number, you can be near the pin. But that's a hole on Sunday that for years we've seen. You hit the middle of the green and it funnels down right to the pin anyways. And for him to not only get it in the water, but I just you never see that on Sunday. You never see a guy on Sunday ever hit it that far left. So it was just a mismanaged shot. I don't think that's really going to factor into his game for the next few years. I would be shocked if we look back at this moment and say that was the one chance he had and he's never recovered. But overall, he is a guy that for as talented as he is, and I'll throw Tony Finau into this mix, they don't win a lot of tournaments. Xander Shoffley is very good, but he's second and third and fourth place quite often the same way that Tony Finau is. John Rahm is different. Rahm hasn't won his major yet, but Rahm wins a lot of events, and he's won several huge events, just not quite a major at this point, which is also why he's, you know, number one in the world within the last year, where Shoffley is top five, top six. But yes, I think overall for for Xander Shoffley, he'll get there. If you told me right now, in the next four years, is he going to win a major? I would take those, I would take that bet and say, I feel very good he will. But at the same point, he did have a chance to put a little bit of game pressure on Hideki Matsuyama on 16 and hit one of the worst shots he could have possibly mm-hmm. hit in that scenario. See what happens there. I, it, it's going to be uh, a quest for a lot of these guys to break through and win their first major. But Matsuyama gets his. 
props to him. Moving on here on the Money Mitch effect to uh, wrestling, because I want to go to WrestleMania right now, the two-night extravaganza, Kent, that uh, I was, I'll start here, I was shocked in retrospect to say that without question, night one was the better night. Would you agree with that? Yeah, easily. I even kind of went back earlier today on it and just went through the card and six of the seven matches on night one, I would say were good or they at least exceeded my expectations. Uh, the only one that I thought was kind of whatever was that tag team gauntlet. Match <laughs> I, I know that you were going to say were, that. Well, I just, yeah, it didn't really serve a purpose. I think overall we could have had somebody already fight against the team in, in day two. But when you look at night one, you had, we laughed about the Braun Strowman and Shane McMahon build. It was horrible, the build-up. But the actual yep. match was fine. The match was entertaining. It was better than expected. The Bad Bunny match, he went out. He performed his ass off. The Miss and Morrison sold like crazy. Mm -hmm. And that match had a good build. And the match was better than any of us could have anticipated. Both title matches were awesome. I thought that the McIntyre-Lashley match, it was a surprise the way it ended. But it was a very good opener. And then the Sasha and Bianca Belair match was great. So realistically, as I said, all night, it was quality yeah. wrestling. Night two, eh, night two had some hits and misses. Yeah, Cesaro and Rollins was great, too. I think the other one to yeah. kind of throw in there. Um, yeah, and before we get to, like, forecasting what the future holds, just, just analyzing the event. Props to night one for everything. You can nitpick certain things, obviously. I think from a glasses half full standpoint, the Bad Bunny thing and the brunch and Shane I'll throw in there, that's about as good as you could kind of ask for, given the build and given the, the agents involved in the ring. Um, I, I'm with you on the main event, the Bianca Belair and uh, Sasha Banks one. It was great. The only thing is I rewatched that, that match too, Kent, and that was a pretty bad botch at the end. Like the finish just got completely uh, screwed up, which – is unfortunate because they were doing so well and it was a great match from, from the beginning till right at the end. Yeah, that corner spot was odd. I don't I still I've only seen it once and that was when it happened in real time on Saturday night. But there was something where, you know, Bianca Belair is kind of laying with her legs on the rope. Sasha either was supposed to knee her and spin away or Bianca was supposed to push her off and nothing happened. And thus, when Bianca got back up, you can tell emotionally she was like, oh, crap, we messed this up, but it's time to move on. Here's the finish. But I'm willing to look aside that. I feel like botches are, they do happen. You hope they don't happen right before that's the final the thing. close. Yeah, they, yeah Michael, that's what it is. Michael Cole, of course, had the call that people criticized him on where he said, Sasha kicked out and she didn't kick out. Mm -hmm. So that will probably be something that's either edited for the rest of time on, on Peacock or the network that a day from now, it's not even there, but in real time, he did mess up that call. Mm -hmm. And then the other match I want to throw in, cause we didn't even discuss this just in the final, in the last few minutes. But I also thought on night one, the tag team title match with the new day basically were the heels. And then AJ Styles and Omos were the, baby faces by all accounts the way they scripted that match and i thought that was a cool way to do it if you want your big seven plus foot giant to look good in his first match have him do a limited move set have him look strong don't have him sell anything and then i liked when aj said put your foot on him and that's the one two three so that's not going to be a match that's like an all-timer but if this guy becomes somebody in the wwe this is a good first step and it's good to kind of have AJ Styles do 95% of the work 
in this tag team and then let him come in and do the other five. I thought that that match was really well done. Yeah, following that Diesel HBK mid-90s blueprint and uh, doing a good job there. Uh, no, I think night one was good. And, um, you know, going into night two, um, other than that main event, and, and I guess you could throw in the women's match, which I just didn't think had enough time. The, the first, the first what, five matches on this card just left a lot to be desired. I mean, starting with match one, because I, I'm out on The Fiend, man. I mean, I, I'm not, no disrespect to Bray, Bray Wyatt, but I'm over this character. I don't know what's going on, and I'm just ready to move on. I'm happy Orton's out of that feud, to be honest. I really like the Sheamus and Riddle match. They only had about 11 minutes, but they did everything they could in that. There yeah, was that's true. actually that, one that botch in that match as mm-hmm. well. But it was just a hard fought. Like Riddle as a character is horrible, but as a wrestler, he's very entertaining. And I feel like they need to figure out, let's limit the character or get him a manager or change things up because his in-ring is very good. And mm-hmm. Sheamus, this is the best he's looked in a match certainly a WrestleMania match in years. So I did like that match a lot. I thought that was one of the better matches in both nights. But yeah, the Fiend character, I think if you do the Firefly Funhouse stuff and you throw, like, like think about this. If they had the Firefly Funhouse match the same way they had Cena last year and you have Orton in this weird world and he has to go through the same stuff that Cena did and they went through his career, maybe you tweak things a little so it's just not completely what it was last year. That, to me, is a win, and you can sell that and kind of make that kind of a fun 10 minutes or five minutes. But what they did was awful, and this version of The Fiend just is a losing way because, A, he lost the match, and, B, the matches are just not entertaining. No, that's the biggest thing for me. Yeah, it's like if Kane, it's like when Kane first started and Kane kind of had, like, he had this monster, uh, you know, this monster kind of edge to him, but the matches were good. Like, he would fight The Undertaker and he would fight Stone Cold Steve Austin, and they were, like, really good matches. Mm-hmm. He'd fight Mick Foley, and for The Fiend, every match he's in has been a bad match. All the Firefly Funhouse stuff has at least been solid, but the actual matches are just so bad, and we know Randy Orton and Bray Wyatt by themselves are more than capable of putting together an entertaining match. But in this world, in this scripted format of this character, as soon as the match started and they kept the red lights and he dove off the off the box, I was just like, okay, this is going to be bad. And it was worse. I think it's the worst match on both nights just because it's two really good wrestlers. And yet the match was awful. It was like a one out of ten, maybe. Yeah, I would uh, I would probably agree with that. There, there's a couple matches in the discussion, but I think I would agree with that. That it was the worst match. Um, you know, the I, we should also mention Owen Zane. I mean, they've had better matches on WWE programming and off of WWE programming. The Logan Paul thing was whatever. I'm glad that he you know was able to pop the crowd by taking a stunner, but that was just whatever for me too. And uh, just all, the last thing to put a bow on before the main event was. Oscar Ripley are great performers, but they were following a great women's match the night before. And, you know, they gave all the time to the main event slot, it seemed like, which I understand why. But they didn't have the time to really have a a classic match either. So good work, but not great, unfortunately. I would say that Oscar Oscar Ripley, it was fine. It was like a decent, it was like a good pay-per-view match that's not a mania main event type of deal i think if you throw this on an armageddon or a no way out or <laughs> one loaded. of those type of pay-per-views it's fine but for wrestlemania house. 
Yeah, exactly. I think I think it was just average at best. It was not any of their best matches. The Logan Paul thing, he he took the stunner and that was cool. But the Owens Zane, I think that was one of the more disappointing matches of both of both nights because these are two great wrestlers who have done amazing matches together for a decade plus, and this was their way of saying we're at Mania, we can put on a five star match, and instead it was anything but. It was probably on the lower half of the 14 matches in both nights. And then the Nigerian drum oh, fight. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah, I, I mean, think, that tells you. I think both guys tried hard. Yeah. I yeah. do like the ending where now you're kind of building up like a new character and there's like a heavy to go with Apollo. But as a whole, it was like seven minutes and they didn't use the drums. I at least figured they would gimmick one or two drums. And I, I like both guys. I think that the way they presented it could have worked. I think overall it was just kind of an average match at best. And that's why I throw the Sheamus and, and Riddle match in there because if you just look at those three singles matches, by far Sheamus-Riddle was the best singles match of the night. There's no question. Yeah, the, there was just a lot to be desired. And I don't want to say it was terrible. It's just, you know, night one was better. Night two was okay, but it felt like just a good television show. You know, not didn't have the WrestleMania feel until the main event, that triple threat match, which was just phenomenal. And there's a lot of ways to break it down. I'm going to start with just unquestioned praise for all three guys involved, uh, Kent, and and just the fact that it's high up on the all-time list. We were talking about this while it was going on. Was it the greatest triple threat match ever in Mania terms, especially WrestleMania 20 with Triple H, Shawn Michaels, and some other guy who we can't mention? <laughs> it probably was that one better. <laughs> Uh, I don't want it to get redacted. We have clean lyrics on this show. But, you know, you know what I'm saying. Like, it, it's up there in terms of best triple threat matches ever, and that's a credit to all three guys, specifically, um, you know, and, and Paul Heyman as well, who had a lot of input in this match. So I, I think we got to start there. It was a classic Mania match. Yeah, I was about to say all five guys because you throw in Jey Uso and Paul Heyman. Mm-hmm. Heyman is so good. Even in a match like this where Heyman's not going to be utilized as if it's a one-on-one match. It's his expressions. It's his expressions. It's amazing. He's always on. Yeah, Heyman's always on. He's always going to present himself like the camera is on him and he doesn't know if the red light is on or not. He's so good. As you said, the expressions are great. I thought that Jey Uso was outstanding the way they used him in this match. And Edge Edge was great. I thought his entrance was cool. He definitely got more of a pop. I mean, just the pyro alone was going to get him some pop. But at the same point, he was kind of the in-between guy in this. Brian's a clear baby face. Roman's a clear heel. And then there's Edge, kind of the tweener in this, that he's technically a heel, but every time he's in the ring with Reigns, he's absolutely not the heel. You mentioned the guy that would go unnamed and the other <laughs> triple threat. I did his move. His move, the crippler crossface, that was an awesome yeah move where they had both guys that was that was a brian spot oh it was great it was awesome the way that worked where you had two people doing the same move on one guy and it was like holy crap man everything about this match is working yeah and daniel bryan was great edge was great reigns was great and now they can spin this going forward and keep both guys somewhat in the discussion but the ending was outstanding yeah. too well, i know that you necessarily i don't think you like the ending as much as well, i did yeah but i like the fact that he's the heel he needs his cousin to help cheat for him that's totally fine if you're the heel and then on top of it putting both guys one on top of the other and 
making sure that Edge's shoulders were also down. Because mm-hmm. some people afterwards were saying, oh, well, yeah, wasn't was Edge stupid. technically on top of Brian? But all four shoulders yeah. from those two guys were down, and Reigns goes on top of them, one, two, three. I thought it was great. And I think both nights, the person who probably should have won the main event did win the main event. And it was interesting. If you look at the four main title matches, the men, both champions kept their title, the Lashley and yeah. Reigns. And for the women, we were crowned new champions with Oscar losing to Rhea Ripley and, of course, Sasha losing to Bianca Belair. So I think it worked out well for both SmackDown mm-hmm. and Raw and the two nights that they ended it the way they did. Yeah, just a couple things I wanted to say before getting to the finish. One being, I mentioned uh, it being a Brian spot. I had heard that he put that together. It was his idea to do the double crossface spot with the with a piece of the chair choking Reigns' mouth. That was just perfect. It's amazing that Brian is still the most over guy on the roster. You know, seven years after his moment at WrestleMania 30. Just speaks to what he does, and I know you mentioned in the ent- in the intro he looked he looked like he was just enjoying it, and it was a great great time for everybody involved. The little nuances made this match for me like things like Reigns making them wait for his entrance, just that little like extra thirty seconds wait. Yeah. Like, I'm the I'm the head of the table. You guys will wait for me. Uso jumping up and down like he's defending the title, but he's you know uh, just out there for support. You know, obviously. Um, it was great. Edge was great. Reigns is, is a legit cool bad guy now. Uh, and just to kind of go to the finish itself, I have no problem with the spot itself. I thought the spot was great, how he stacked them and him winning. I would have just liked to see, I guess, a little more dominance if you're going to go in that direction. That's my nitpicking, of course, because we've, we've. it's just funny. I was thinking about this. When Lashley beat McIntyre, they went off, and we talked about how weird it was. Like McIntyre got screwed because he got distracted. But you have Jey Uso literally running up and down, going nuts, interfering in the match, getting taken out, coming back, interfering, getting taken out. But they don't mention that that's uh, an issue there. So that's just the only thing. It's minor. I want to see where this goes uh, with the title picture. But, uh, no, it was a great match and uh, a great way to end a show that needed that boost to end. And you mentioned the Daniel Bryan just being so happy out there in the ring. You can tell. I mean, he kind of knows this is most likely – his last WrestleMania main event ever. I'd be very surprised if he's back in this type of position again, but you watched it and yeah, you can tell he's out there and he knew we have something special Edge is in the ring. I mean, edge is always one of the top performers when he's out there and Roman reigns. I think early on, there were reasons to think that, you know, when the shield first started, it was pretty evident. He was the third best wrestler of the three. I don't think there's any question about that. But you watch him now. He puts quality matches together. And as a heel, it fits his moveset even better because he does a lot of power moves. He's not a high flyer. He can, you know, do things on the outside. Like, I thought the one spot was great where, you know, he put Brian through the table and he's standing up on on the stairs. And the next thing you know, Edge just spears him off of those stairs. That was really cool. And that's the type of stuff that – Triple threat matches, a lot of times, you see one guy down and two guys fighting, and then one guy's down and the other two are fighting. And in this match, you had moments like that, but it was always for a very meaningful reason why someone was down. And you knew when that person gets back up, they're going to be the one that disrupts the pin or, or disrupts Roman from you know tapping or quitting. And they used that very well. This was not a match that they kind of just half-assed it in terms of their approach of, okay, Edge will sit out for these six minutes. Reigns will be down for these four. It was briefer than that, and on top of it, 
when the person was out, it was because of a gigantic spot that led them to have to be out for a couple minutes. So overall, I think that match was, you know, it exceeded my expectations and I had very high expectations for it going in. I had a great time watching WrestleMania. The future is going to be bright. I think the title pictures are going to be fun. You've already seen Charlotte come back, um, you know, looking skinnier without her boyfriend this time in WWE, but she's ready to go. Uh, and then Not last... to let them, by the way, <laughs> I, I, I do want to say, yeah. I do think the Rhea and Asuka match would have been much better, or maybe originally it was supposed to be Charlotte Asuka, and then there was the mishap there about was all she pregnant stuff. or not. Yeah, uh, all that stuff. But if you added her to that, now granted, you couldn't really do two triple threat title matches back-to-back that just wouldn't work, but not having Charlotte Flair on the card when she is almost definitely the best women's wrestler ever and she was ready to go, that's disappointing. And I do think that you could have had a much better women's match. Because Rhea Ripley, I think she'll be fine going forward. But right now, like Charlotte is a 10 out of 10 at her best when she comes to a big match. Rhea Ripley is maybe a 6 or a 7 at best if she's doing everything that's asked of her. And at WrestleMania, you want to see the best performers. And one of them was sitting out for no real reason. Yeah, Bailey didn't wrestle either. So there, there's just—it's interesting how this all shapes up. Who works with who? What falls into place? Uh, but WrestleMania in the books. Uh, Money Mitch Effect with Kent Brown. We're gonna finish this show talking NHL. Uh, the trade deadline happened. Teams loading up. Te- teams selling. Kent, you're Penguins. Unfortunately, you know nobody's perfect, and I think obviously Kent's a great example of that. But you're a Penguins fan, and <laughs> Jeff Carter is now a Pittsburgh Penguin. So. The Penguins and the the regime of Hextall and Burke coming in when people thought it might be a rebuild, they've gone for it. The players have stepped up. Crosby has kind of put the team on his back with Malkin out. Now they're buyers at the deadline. They're looking at the playoffs squarely. Carter there to score goals. I think that's a good move. I'm interested to hear your take on him joining the squad. Yeah, I think he adds another guy that has a ton of experience when it matters. He's a he's a veteran. He's somebody that you can rely on, as you said to me, a big power play guy now that you can have out there that he knows how to score in big situations. And, you know, let's be real, the Penguins have, they battled injuries all year with top players. They're an older team in terms of their entire top tier players. So I think overall they know that, like, this is a team that's over-succeeded this year. I did not think that they would be near the top of the East Division and they are, and they've been there now for the last six to eight weeks. So if you were going to be sellers or you were going to be a rebuild, that would have made sense potentially a few months ago if things weren't getting better and better. But now, why not see what you can do and see, I mean, here's the good thing is you're going to be playing in the first two rounds, you know, teams that are in your division anyways, and the Penguins have proven they've done pretty well against those teams. And then if they can get through that, then you're off to a Final Four, and at that point, anybody can win Mm -hmm. if they're hot for the last two series. So I like the approach. I think it's worth it. And, you know, this is a team right now that I don't think the Penguins are a true top-tier contender, where, you know, if you look at it, I wouldn't put them top five or maybe even top six in terms of most likely to win the Cup. But they have players that are capable of beating great teams in a seven-game series when it matters. And I think it's worth rolling the dice and seeing what happens. And, you know, I wouldn't have thought a week ago that Carter ends up a Pittsburgh Penguin, but 
hey, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I think that this season has been way more fun than I would have anticipated. And the fact that they're two points out of first place right now is pretty shocking. Uh, the other problem is I really don't think they're going to catch the Capitals long term. I feel like the Capitals also help themselves out. And let's be real, the Islanders and Penguins really aren't as good as Washington. So I think long term, it's most likely going to be the Penguins in that two versus three game. But still, they, they got a piece yeah. that will help. And overall, there's nothing wrong with, with with getting a veteran who has a lot of playoff experience. Well, it's interesting, too, because I agree with most of that. But I also think every team is having to make an acquisition, you know, some bigger than others. But you look just in your division. Every team made a move that's in that top four spot to bolster themselves. Now, the Bruins add Taylor Hall. The Capitals trade Vrana for Montha. That was an interesting p- trade with some cap projections, uh, cap uh, implications, and then the Islanders trading for uh, Kyle Palmieri last week. But every team's got to make their moves, and you can even look at the Canadian division uh, for examples with that. But I think with Pittsburgh, I think you know you have guys that are battle-tested. You know you have players that can step up. They're going to have issues with the back end and goaltending consistency that's going to ultimately make or break them. But, yeah, I'm I'm in the approach of you. I mean, this division this year, actually, Ken, it's interesting. It's not one of the strongest top-heavy division. There's a lot of depth in this division, but the Capitals, I don't know if they're quite as good as they've been. The Islanders are good, but they haven't ever gotten to a Stanley Cup final, and the Bruins have taken a step back as a result of losing some of their defensemen. So, I get the thought process here. They didn't pay a premium. They didn't go out and and trade the farm for Taylor Hall or some bigger prospect or bigger player, I should say. But they're in the mix. They got Crosby and Malkin, and they like their chances. So I I like this deal a lot for that regard. It gives you a chance to bolster without giving away too many future assets. And what do you think about the Hall deal? Because he has kind of a he has such a weird career in that you know he won the Hart Trophy. He's a guy that at his best is very good. But then you look at him, and now it's what four teams in six or seven seasons Uh he's a guy that frankly with buffalo it just wasn't working out and he's somebody that i think you know boston definitely improved their team this week but i don't necessarily look i don't look at him the same way i i probably would have a few years ago with this move so i don't necessarily think it's it's worth doing if you're boston but i don't think that this makes them a stanley cup contender any more than kind of where they were a week ago I mean, it's just so funny because Hall and Lazar was the trade for Anders Bjork, who's a forward that hasn't been doing that well on a second-round pick. So Buffalo traded Taylor Hall and another solid player. Didn't get a first-round back. You know, Columbus traded a journeyman defenseman for, for a late first-round pick and a the captain, who was essentially a good third-line tough guy forward, each got first-round picks. I don't think this trade is bad for the Bruins in the sense that it's worth doing. As you say, they didn't give up much. And it could make them better if Hall, you know, look, he didn't produce this year goal-scoring-wise. The Sabres are a disaster. It's the worst team I've seen in the last probably 20 years. So if he comes out of that looking good, it's very possible. He's not the best two-way player. And I think the bigger issue for me, Kent, is don't rush to extend him. That's where they could screw themselves in the future. Is I don't think it's a bad deal now to make. But I would absolutely wait and see how this pans out. If they try to lock him up early or, or you know, he, he goes on a hot streak and then they give him this mega deal, that could be disastrous because I don't know that he, because of injuries and also production, is going to live up to it. Yeah, I can totally get that. I think that's right. You don't want to all of a sudden just buy into somebody just because he's wearing your sweater and your colors now. Let him earn it, and then all of a sudden 
reevaluate things. But when I look at this, you know, to me, the Lightning are still, in my opinion, I know they're technically not the Vegas favorite. It's the Avalanche. But, man, I, I think the Lightning have as well, good a chance here to repeat as, you know, anybody in a while. Yeah. The Golden Knights, I don't necessarily buy into them as much, but they're very good. And I'm so intrigued with the Maple Leafs. I think it's yeah. funny because I kind of know what's going to happen and they're going to choke it away in like the most <laughs> Maple Leafs slash like Canada but hope like, ever. But but they look really good. Like yeah. to me, they look like one of the best three teams. I would go Lightning 1, Avalanche 2, and Maple Leafs 3 right now in terms of just real contenders. Jack Campbell gives them goaltending. I mean, he lost, you know, tonight or two nights ago as we do this. It's um it, it was 11 straight wins, you know, the record that we've seen in the NHL. So if he's playing hot as a hot goalie, I mean, that, that gives him everything with the Felino trade, too. The one, I agree that the karma and the juju is not there, but it's an all-Canadian division, Kent. So some Canadian team has to get to the Final Four. And then, as you said, anything can happen. Um, as far as a couple other points, as far as you mentioned Tampa being the favorite or, or should be the favorite, Biggest thing for them is Kucherov's not playing. If he comes back, you're adding an MVP to your roster who's won a cup before. So that just and, and that's the biggest yeah. addition of any of any deadline, so to speak. That division is scary though, with Carolina and Florida, and then a huge drop off. That the one seed is crucial. So if Tampa can get that one seed, that's going to set up huge for them and let Carolina and Florida, who are both solid but not as proven, beat the crap out of each other. That West division though. It's just Vegas and Colorado. Like there is the huge drop off. There's no division with a steeper drop off from team two to three. So that is just is just gearing up for a showdown in the second round where a lot's gonna be decided. I think that that division is gonna be, you know, that if we get it, I think that's the surest bet for a second round matchup as there can be, because nothing's for sure. But Colorado and Vegas are just eyeing each other because talent wise, skill wise, you name it, they're so much better than every other team in that division. Oh, yeah, right. Like, that's right now. If the odds are out there for that, it's very likely those two are going head-to-head mm-hmm. with a chance to move on to the semifinals. I do think it's interesting just, you know, in terms of the geographic way that we set up these divisions this year, that the three Southeast teams that got placed in the Central because they had to be somewhere, they're the three teams in the Central division that are, like, the best teams. So I think it's going to be like, funny for the casual sports fan that sees the playoff bracket in, in a month or two, and they go, wait a second, the Central, Tampa, Carolina, Florida, what is going on? Not realizing those were kind of the leftover teams that just had to be somewhere, and they weren't going to put them with all the Northeast teams. So I do always find that type of stuff funny when it happens. But right now it should be, obviously we're heading towards what always is a fun Stanley Cup playoff. But I like what you're saying in that the West, in terms of there's been the two separators of Colorado and Vegas, and I, the Maple Leafs are so much better to me than all the other Canadian teams, but it would be somewhat fitting if they happen to just fall off to Montreal or to Edmonton or somebody like that. And that would not shock me at all if that happens in the playoffs. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. And frankly, I'm kind of rooting for it. Just I, I'm not an anti-Maple Leafs person, but I grew up going to a lot of like hockey games and it was always funny, especially <laughs> when I would go to Panthers games yeah. and whenever I was a student at Miami, and just how many of the snowbirds that are from Canada would be down there. And there are so many Maple Leafs fans just attending these games because they live in Florida in the winter months. Yeah. 
and they are just they're as diehard as any fan base. Yeah. You can throw Alabama football, they're, you can throw Ohio State Montreal, football, Toronto, it's Kentucky like insane. basketball. Yeah. yeah, the Maple Leafs are right there with like the Kentucky basketball and the Alabama football type of like yeah. crazy fan bases. And yet they have nothing to show for it. <laughs> nothing. It's a, hey, you know what? That could be a, a final matchup. Cause remember they recede that that's the rule this year is whoever makes it into the playoffs, the final four out of your division, they're going to recede. So there's no set yep. Stanley cup matchup. So who knows, Kent, we could see Toronto take on Florida in the Stanley cup final, which, you know, would be, would be a, a fun sight to see. Um, Last, uh, you know, last bit of info, though, I am a little worried. I mean, Vancouver has been dealing with their COVID issues and that could delay the start of the playoffs in the Canadian division. So we want to get, you know, that going as quickly as possible. The NHL's got a tough decision there if the races are close down the stretch. That and you just mentioned Florida potentially in a finals. Are they going to bring the rats back? Oh, that's yeah. the thing. Remember back in the 90s, I do. they upset I do. the Penguins. They upset the Penguins in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, they go on to lose pretty overwhelmingly to the Avalanche. But nonetheless, those rats, I remember just watching, you know, watching Tom Barrasso just have to hover in his net there as they threw all those rats onto the ice down there in Sunrise, Florida. And uh, ever since then, I've not, I've not been huge on the Panthers. I always liked, like, at that time, I liked the Beezer. I thought, you know, he was a good goalie, and that's yeah. what I grew up playing. But at the same point for the Panthers, I'd rather see the lightning or rather see the hurricanes. Uh, I still <laughs> yeah. wish they would have just, they should just bring back the whalers name anyway and call themselves the whalers. But I guess it's too late. And frankly, I don't know if Hartford would even allow them to do it. <laughs> no, we got to call Scott Melby and Stu Barnes and get those rats back into the building. If they make a run. Stu Barnes. Uh, <laughs> that's, Absolutely. Yeah, that's what we need. Kent Brown. This was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, be safe um, that's a warning I don't give to any other guest uh, but you know stay out of trouble and uh, hope to have you back here on the show absolutely it's been my pleasure alright huge thanks to Kent Brown that is going to do it for today's Money Mitch Effect episode if you like it leave a review a rating subscribe share it you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, everywhere you can find your podcasts. And uh, make sure that you spread the word. Follow me on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21 and check out the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page. Also, check out the new Tennis Channel podcast. I host Tennis Channel Inside In, an inside look at the professional tour, the uh, men's and women's players. A lot of analysts, a lot of players, a lot of legends are going to be on that podcast. It's tennis talk like you've never heard it before. Tennis Channel Inside In. That's going to do it for the show. We'll be back next week. we got the draft coming up, uh, the NFL draft, so a lot to discuss there. It's hockey season, Mosey's along, tennis, golf, all the big sports, basketball, everything picking up, as well as baseball. Shout-out to Shane Bieber, nine scoreless innings and a win last night that took extras to get to. That's going to do it for the show. I am Mitch Michaels. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Until next time, keep enjoying sports.